A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling them, Lord, your dear friend is sick. When Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, There are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Mary and Martha in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I know that God will do whatever you ask. Jesus told her, Your brother will rise again. Yes, he will rise when everyone else rises, at the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord. I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, The teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha had met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, 
thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, Unwrap him and let him go. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. The Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time, said, You don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He did not say this on his own. As high priest at the time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation, and not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. He went to a place near the wilderness to the village of Ephraim and stayed there with his disciples. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, may we know you as friend and uh, may we delight in your presence. We say that in your name. Amen. Well, church, I've been looking forward uh, to John 11 for, for a while now, and um, particularly because I wanted to zero in on verse 33, where we're told that a deep anger uh, welled up within Jesus. And the reason that caught my attention is likely that that phrasing catches your attention as well. What's going on with the anger that, that Jesus is feeling um, that he's experiencing in the setting of the story. And actually, uh, earlier in the week when I distributed the passages that were going to be read by different members of our community, uh, two different people reached out inquiring, what's going on uh, with the anger that Jesus is feeling? And, um, I think that there is really something powerful uh, to behold here in the description of what's happening within Jesus's being. Uh, in the setting of Lazarus's tomb, the primary language that's used to describe what Jesus is experiencing is anger. Uh, several commentators mention that this word that's used here in the Greek is, is meant to provoke the imagery of a snorting horse. Like Think about the deep fury and, and power uh, that is being felt here, that what Jesus is feeling in the setting of this tomb is rage. He's furious. But as we navigate this, as we tread through what's happening here and how Jesus uh, is feeling and the emotions that are raging within him, there are some things that I want us to be mindful of. The first thing that I would point out to us is right at the front end of the story. Uh, we're told that when notice is sent to, to Jesus from the two sisters. In verse 3, it says, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Your friend is sick. 
Actually, Jesus' relationship with this trio of siblings, siblings, uh, Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus, is something to behold. In the next chapter, in, in chapter 12, on the front end, we'll see that it's, we're told that, that this family is hosting Jesus. And a lot of people believe that this is something that regularly happened. Um, Jesus was really close. Your dear friend is sick. Like, it's like, do you know that degree of friendship where someone's so close with you that when they're over at your house and others are over as well, that they begin to take on the, the role of host and you're completely fine with it? Like, they can go into your pantry, they can grab food, and they can start distributing it to the other people that you're hosting. Like when a spill happens in the living room, they know exactly what rags you want to use and where they're at to clean up that spill. Like they know which bathroom that you would prefer people to be directed to. Right? This, this closeness of friendship where you, where you trust them and you know them and they know you, that's kind of the, the friendship that's, that's described here. Lazarus is a dearly beloved of Jesus. And so it creates... This tension for us. I think that John intentionally creates this tension for us because there's a sense of bewilderment as Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick and then we're told he waits two days before he goes to visit Lazarus. And, and I think that what, what John is doing here is he's also creating a tension that would describe the entirety of human experience. We recognize that we are the beloved of God. We are his dearly beloved. We are his prized possession. We are described as his inheritance. We're described as his joy. We're described as his bride. I mean, the, the depth of love that is described uh, and, and, and the preciousness that we have in Jesus' sight, right, is something extremely powerful. And so there's always been this tension that we navigate. So why are we navigating pain? So why are we navigating sickness? Why is it the case that it feels like you could show up in this moment, but you're not, right? And, I, and, and so... John, I think, beautifully highlights this tension that we've all felt. That it almost feels like Jesus is ho-hum about Lazarus' sickness. Because if a dear friend is sick, you would immediately get up and go visit them. But he waits. He waits two days. And so that's, I think, setting the stage for, for often how we feel. Act. Act now, and there seems to be this disconnect from God's movement and our expectations about how he should be moving in the timetable by which he's moving. And so then I think it's extremely important for us to capture what happens, especially in verses 33 through 36. If you have your Bible in front of you, I would encourage you to go get a highlighter and underline or to highlight every part of this passage or every part in this section that talks about Jesus seeing. And it's not only here, but I, it's in verse 27 as well, when Martha comes to Mary and says, the teacher wants to see you. 
And it's described here that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and he saw the others wailing, that a deep anger rose up within him. And so I think that John creates this tension for us. Jesus, why doesn't it feel like you're acting? And then we get to verse 33, and we're given incredible insight into what's happening within the depths of who God is, that he sees us. And it's, and it's when he sees us and the pain that we're going through, a deep fury rages inside of him. It's this place where I would think that it may be a good way for us to see this, this passage, especially in verse 33, is by recognizing that Mary is the object of Jesus' compassion and death is the object of Jesus' anger. He sees what death is doing to humanity. He sees what pain is doing to us. His eyes are upon what we're going through. And it causes something within him that rages, that roars within him, consumes him, causes him to shake because of what he sees we are going through. And so we might feel at times like he's disconnected. But what we see described here by John is that he knows, he sees, he peers into what we're feeling. And when he sees what we're going through and what death is doing to us, he's roaring. And then I, I want you to see the invitation that happens here. That Mary and Martha tell Jesus, come and see. Come and see where we've laid him. Come and see what we're walking through. Jesus, come and see our pain. Come and see and look at the fact that our brother has, has died. And they bring to Jesus their biggest point of pain and suffering. It says that right after they say that, right after they say, Jesus, come and see, John tells us, Jesus weeps. He starts bawling. He's wailing. He's crying out. And this week, as I've further looked into this passage, I've started viewing their phrase to Jesus in the context of prayer, right? I mean, they're coming to him and they're saying, Jesus, look at, do you see what we're seeing? Do you, do you, or is your attention on what we're going through? Jesus, do you, do you realize what we're facing? And Jesus weeps. And I think that's huge for me to capture when I think about what I bring before the Lord. That when my prayers rise like incense to heaven, <laughs> that when my prayers come before him and when groaning happens within me for the things that, that are happening in the world around me, John gives us some insight of what's happening in the heart of God. He's weeping, he's, he's wailing, his, his body is, his, is convulsing, he's overcome with grief. And so it's not only that, that 
he sees what we're going through, but he feels what we're going through. That Jesus joins them in their tears. What is being expressed in their bodies is jointly being expressed in Jesus's body. And over the pages of scripture, we will find that God knows precisely what we're going through and that he just doesn't see it, but he has felt it as well. Because listen, you can see someone going through something and you can be disconnected from it. You can see someone going through something and you can feel compassion for what they're going through. But when God sees our pain, it's something that he has has actually felt within the depths of his being. When they say, come and see, in that moment, we see a God who is experiencing exactly what we're experiencing. Jesus joins us in our pain. The other thing that I would highlight for us, in verse 25, Jesus makes one, one of his seven I am statements that are in the book of John. He, he tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And this may be the biggest indicator for why Jesus is so furious in the face of death. His beloved are experiencing that which is the furthest extreme of who he is. He's life. He's breathed life into us. He holds all of creation together. He spoke creation into existence, and he was greatly delighted in that which was good. So here God is filled with great joy to see life. He's Filled with joy over life, that he is looking over the works of creation, places in which humanity will never see, and he's just delighting in the life that he's made. And he's loved us most fiercely. He sees creation, he sees life, he sees human flourishing, and the response out of his being is to say, It is is very good. This is what he desires. This is what he wants for us. Thinking, bridging us back to John chapter 10 and verse 10, right? The enemy comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and life to the full. That his desire for us is to experience life and life in him. And so it's no wonder that when he arrives at the tomb, he's furious. Because in this moment, he's standing in front of the antithesis of who he is. He is confronting the enemy. He is confronting the oppressor of humanity. There's, I'm, I'm going to bring up Mufasa again. I know that I've brought him up in, in uh, a handful of other uh, sermons But there's this point in which Simba and Nala are visiting the elephant graveyard. And as they are, um, the hyenas show up and they, they corner Simba and Nala. 
And Simba jumps down and tries to roar in front of, of the hyenas. And as he does, it, the hyenas just burst into laughter because his roar is so puny and weak. And his second roar, as he comes to roar, an alertness happens with hyenas because it isn't this weak roar anymore. It is this mighty roar that happens. And into the scene comes Mufasa, filled with rage, filled with fury. And he swats at the hyenas and he gets in their face and he says something. Don't ever come near my son again. I, I think this is a, is, a, is a great description of what is it happening within the being of Jesus. That the object of his wrath what he's looking at is death. He's furious. And I think it's the same words. <laughs> Don't come near my beloved again. He's, he's indignant about what death is doing to his beloved. He's indignant about the pain that humanity is facing. And again, I would say as followers of Christ, that that is good for us to see how deeply Jesus is moved by the pain that humanity is going through. He's not disconnected from it. And honestly, this is why I am so in love with the work of our global partners and the ways that members are, of our community are involved in local relief efforts. Connected to our community are, are people, and people that are even watching right now with us. We've seen the pain of blindness. We've seen the plight of the orphan. We've seen the hardship of refugees. We've seen the darkness of human trafficking, and we deeply desire for their to be life in these spaces. That we want college campuses to be the place where revival and reconciliation emerges. Is We desire for young women fleeing from trafficking to find hope and community. We long to see radiant smiles on orphans' faces as they discover a place that faithfully loves and embraces them. We long for those orphans to be unhindered in their dreams about what their future beholds. We pray and support for the work of reconciliation in the greatest places of conflict around the globe. We seek to support those that are looking for refuge from the tragedy and hell of war. We celebrate and encourage the work of God's living word being made available to people who don't have the Bible translated in their own language. Why? Because alongside with God, because what we have seen emerge in the depths of God's being is that he is moved by what people are going through and he longs to show up in our pain. There's a fury raging within his being for what humanity is going through. As we wrap up, I want us to bring us back to that tension that John creates for us. Remember that tension of Jesus seeming to wait around. What we know highlighted over the book of John is that Jesus emphasizes that the Father and the Son are working together. 
that the son will not do anything and will not say anything unless the father instructs him to do so. And we want Jesus to move, but he waited. And so why are the father and the son jointly holding back from leaping to Lazarus's healing? We, we, get, we get something so crucial highlighted for us by John. As we are sitting and wondering, why are you waiting, Jesus? Why are you waiting to respond to the pain that Mary and Martha are going through? Why are you waiting to heal Lazarus? And then in this instance, in this story, we're given... We're given insight. We're given insight because Jesus tells us. He says this. He says, for your sakes, for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. And in this place where it feels like Jesus is indifferent, we get this really crucial insight. God is actually doing something for our sake, and he's passionate about it, that he's filled with gladness because he sees that this is going to be the best possible thing for humanity to face in this instance, for your sake. I'm, I'm making this decision for you. And, and, and it's one of those places where we have to just step back and say, we have to trust, God, that what you're doing really is for our sake, that this really will be the best way for us. And, and you, what you see here is, is the father and son working in tandem, and their priority is us. And while we're in a place of trying to figure out, why aren't you prioritizing us? Why, isn't it you, or why aren't you acting on our behalf? John allows us to peer in to, to the movement and the work and the cooperation of the Father and the Son. There's this really big context that they are passionate about us, that they are Furious about the pain that we're going through, that we are their dearly beloved, that we are their friend. And there's something. There's something about their decision making. There's something about how they're going forward where we've, we see that they are moving and operating for our sake. Dallas Willard would, would tell his friends uh, this sometimes. Listen, if there were a better way, Jesus would be the first one to encourage you to take it. Um, and and that, is, that, is a difficult, that is a difficult place to be. And, and I... And what I want us to capture and what I want us to see in this, God is not indifferent to our pain. God is made absolutely furious by death, and he deals with the great oppressor of humanity. 
this part here of, of John's gospel um, would almost, it would be like a mid-season uh, finale in a TV series where, where the enemy is confronted, but you know that as that finale happens that there's a greater battle that's ahead. And what we're what this this chapter eleven is this is this turning the corner kind of moment where after chapter eleven everything is going to be about Jesus is getting very very close to the crucifixion, and so so what really I see described for us here in John chapter eleven is is that God is dealing with the oppressor of humanity. He is confronting death and sin and pain and suffering. But we now, right, as followers of Christ in the context in which we find ourselves, God has, has defeated the enemy. He has defeated the oppressor of humanity. But we're still walking through Life and its pain and its disappointments and death and disease. We're walking through all of those things until we fully see or fully immersed in that victory that Jesus has won on our behalf. And so it's extremely important that as we wait for the day to see that Jesus, to see the work that Jesus has fully accomplished for us. It is absolutely imperative that we know that he is here with us in the pain that we are currently navigating. And I think that that is largely what's happening here in the story of Lazarus. Is that God feels fiercely about what we're going through. And he is dealing with it. But as we still navigate the shadow of death, we need to know that he's here with us, that he is here amongst us, that he sees us and that he feels what we're feeling. And he's crying alongside of us. And he joins us exactly where we're at to encourage us and to also point us to that good and final work that he is accomplishing on our behalf. It is a mystery in a lot of ways when, when God doesn't seem to be working how we desire him to be working or the timetable by which we believe he should be operating. But hear closely what he is telling his disciples. For your sakes, for your sakes, I am, I am considering you. And, and you, you are in, in my sight. And I am passionate, passionate about being with you and taking on the oppressor of humanity.